Are you on the go and only have a short window to peek at the local headlines? We've got you covered. The KOSU Daily Podcast brings you Oklahoma news every weekday in a condensed and accessible way. Head over to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to the KOSU Daily to get the scoop on the latest Oklahoma news. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Lawmakers are returning again to the Capitol on Tuesday, as ordered by Governor Stitt to take on tax cuts. Stitt wants income taxes eliminated, but the leader of the Senate, President Pro Tem Greg Treat, says he has yet to hear from the governor on how he wants it done. Neva, what can people expect from the upcoming special session? Well, I think they can expect that lawmakers will come to the Capitol and really probably wait and see what the governor unfolds. I think uh, uh, Pro Tem Treat made it clear in a a news conference uh, earlier this week in Tulsa, basically saying we will respect the governor, we but we'll have tough questions and we want you to come and lay out a plan and then let's move forward. And I think I think both the House and the Senate in terms of Republican leadership appear to uh, be in a wait and see ball game still. And uh, the interesting thing is the governor has at least to what I at least at this point uh, has not uh, publicly said that he's going to attend this uh, in, this this budget meeting, uh, lay out a plan in that uh, venue. So it may be a short uh, it may be a short special session, which is becoming more of a common s- session uh, as we see the regular session come and go, and the governor calling the legislature back into special session, and it is and then. In this instance, I think it's interesting that he really uh, was so narrow in his scope of what he wanted uh, lawmakers to consider. He didn't lay the grocery tax into the equation. Uh, he laid it out and said that he wanted uh, wanted them to really focus on the idea of reducing uh, income taxes and ultimately eliminating the income tax, which mm-hmm. opens up this whole Pandora's box of a conversation of how do you get there. Yeah. Well, Ryan. Well, I think that, uh, Neva, you said that he did not put the grocery tax on the call for the special right. session. I think that that's telling about kind of the purpose of this special session, because when he's talking about the income tax and he keeps using the, the language that he's using is, you know, fairness to all Oklahomans. What he's really talking about there, I, I believe, is the, the Strobel case that's making that's currently before the Oklahoma State Supreme Court uh, that would address the issue of whether the state can assess income tax on Native Americans uh, in the state of Oklahoma that are currently living in tribal uh, within tribal jurisdiction. In that case, if the court decides they, the state can no longer assess that income tax, I think that there's estimates of anywhere from $770 million to maybe uh, $200 million in terms of a hit to the state of Oklahoma's revenue. And the governor's response here seems to be out of proportion to that because we're talking about something that would be a $4 billion hit to state revenue. So. That's where I think that you see the president pro temp Greg Treat have a lot of reservations about a, a plan or, or about a call for a special session to eliminate $4 billion in revenue and really no plan to get there. And a lot of these lawmakers, they, they have been there long enough uh, that they remember uh, revenue failures uh, in the not too distant past, multiple revenue failures over and over and over again. So the fact that we seem to be on more solid footing from a revenue perspective in the state in the state right now, they don't look at that as you know it's it's uh, it's you know sunny days ahead forever. 
you know, they, they remember the past. And it is interesting to see Republicans go back and forth on, on tax cuts. Uh, and it is interesting to not see the grocery tax on there. That's about a $300 million price tag. But it is the one thing that Republicans and Democrats can seem to agree on. And I think if the governor had come in and said, I want a special session, I want to focus on the grocery tax, I, I believe that odds would be better than not that we would end up with a grocery tax cut at the end of that special session. Right now, unless the governor appears before the legislature and answers these questions, I don't think anything goes anywhere. Now, some unsolicited advice to the governor, show up, mm-hmm. have a plan, and, 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 and accept the challenge. Sit down at the table, answer the questions, push your agenda, and see what happens there. Otherwise, this isn't going to go anywhere but press releases. Well, and I think it's interesting. I mean, we're talking about a situation where the state is in a very good position. I mean, you have a, a billion three in the rainy day fund. You have all of these other funds that uh, the revenue stabilization fund we've talked about before, other unspent cash. The report last month from OMES basically said that the state had about over $5 billion uh, that uh, were in either unspent or projected revenues. That's a great place to be. And I think lawmakers want to have a thoughtful conversation about having some tax relief, having some some uh, something there that they can uh, take back and tell the folks back home that they've done uh, that is that is helpful to all Oklahomans. But right now we're kind of at a just a, a place where um, it's a, as you say, Ryan. It's really a non-starter because no one's laid a, a really credible plan on the table and said, "Let's start the the debate from here and move forward." So, if something changes, uh, it'll. I think uh, it would be a pleasant surprise for many lawmakers. They would like to have constructive uh, time spent at the Capitol if they're going to be called back into session or come into regular session. So, uh, I think we'll watch with interest next week and see what happens. And all of this is happening among other legislative business at the Capitol. We've got a bunch of interim studies that are happening, and I've been focusing on on several of them. Many of these interim studies are talking about the lack of funding for mental health care in rural Oklahoma and, and how abysmal that is. Well, when we look at the amount of money that the state has in revenue right now and, and in savings, a lot of that's one-time dollars. And it's not something that we can count on over and over and over again, but they could make significant investments in infrastructure and things like mental health, in particular in rural Oklahoma. That's where I think most lawmakers, especially as we hear these interim studies, I think that that's where they're looking right now is, you know, how do we invest this money, not uh, especially one-time dollars, not how do we cut something permanently that we probably will never be able to put back into the budget. A new poll shows overwhelming support for tribal governments by Oklahoma voters. The Sooner survey finds 80% agree tribes are good for Oklahomans. Also, four in five voters believe the state should work with tribal nations to improve the state. Ryan, were you surprised by these numbers? I think that uh, I was surprised that they were this high, uh, uh, of course. And if you look, the, the numbers aren't just, you know, Democrats uh, like tribal governments in the state of Oklahoma and recognize their benefits. Republicans do as well. I think that the Democratic numbers were somewhere over 90 percent. Republican numbers were above 70 percent, though. Finding anything in politics where you have above 70% for Republicans and above 90% for Democrats, that is a, a unique situation. And the tribal governments recognize that. They, they understand. They're one of the largest employers in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, they are terrific partners, uh, both of, of uh, state government, local governments, uh, county governments, and private sector actors in the state of Oklahoma, tribal and non-tribal. And people recognize that. They, they see that benefit. And uh, it does put the governor on a smaller island than he was even before this poll came out. 
because he seems to be standing alone. There really doesn't seem to be any, even people within his administration, and I know that they have to kind of tiptoe around it because of the governor's new powers of being able to just summarily fire people. But you can even see people within his administration trying to, in a roundabout way, say the state needs to be cooperating with these tribes because everyone benefits when we have these productive conversations. It was interesting, too, in that survey, you had 86% of the voters saying that they had heard about McGirt. And we've talked about that a lot and the impact that it's having just in the conversation and the whole issue of tribal sovereignty here in Oklahoma. But 86% of voters have have said that they were familiar with the the ruling or at least had heard about it. Uh, And then when they followed up, I thought the fascinating thing was that they asked, who did you trust more? Who do you trust more uh, to deal with these issues that are stemming from McGirt versus Oklahoma? And when you look at the when you look at the breakdown, I mean, it kind of corresponds to what we're saying in in the over kind of the overarching look at this poll. Uh, you had the tribes and the attorney general basically coming in strong, 27, 26 percent side by side. You had the governor dropping down to 18 percent, and then the federal government 16 percent. So, I mean, you can see where at least in this snapshot in this survey, uh, voters are beginning to form some very solid opinions about uh, what's going on with respect to these big issues facing the state. And I think when when uh, all elected officials or folks looking at running for office, uh, these are the kinds of, uh, uh, this is the kind of data and polling that uh, certainly I think begins to influence conversations and certainly can influence future political campaigns. And, and you've got Governor-elect Drummond, I'm, I'm sorry, Attorney General Drummond, who has only been in office for less than a year at 26% over a two-term governor at 18%. That's pretty remarkable just in the fact of of, uh, name ID, the fact that he has enough name ID among Oklahomans that 26% can say that they know him and they know him well enough to trust him on these issues. It it seems to demonstrate that not only is is, uh, A.G. Drummond's position on this, what he thinks is is the legally and politically right decision, but it seems to be the popular decision among voters as well. Oklahoma is joining 16 other states and the U.S. government in an antitrust lawsuit against Amazon. The Federal Trade Commission and a bipartisan group of state attorneys general accused the retail giant of illegally maintaining monopoly power, resulting in artificially high prices. Neva, what do you think of this legal action? Well, I think it, it, it's interesting. I think the, the big takeaway I saw was the fact that the, the whole thrust by the Federal Trade Commission uh, being driven by the chair of the commission uh, seems to stem back a lot <laughs> to the beginning of her legal career. Um, when she was a student in law school, one of the reports I read said that uh, she one of the major papers that she published was uh, really a um, a an attack on Amazon. It was an it was uh, really taking on the tech giant, saying that they were anti-competitive and should be broken up. And then, uh, out of law school, she's out of law school, and within three years, she's uh, the Democratic counsel for the House Judiciary Committee, writing this 500-page or so uh, document, uh, taking on not only Amazon but Apple and Facebook and Google, and basically saying all of these monopolies are like the oil barons and the railroad tycoons of the past and all need to be busted up. So, and now we come to, you know, we come to not only uh, what's going on currently, but the fact that we're seeing uh, with the FTC at 
at some point they are winning some and losing some against these uh, against these major uh, major companies. Uh, they they found I think it was earlier this year Amazon paid out thirty million uh, in FTC uh, lawsuits, and those were winners in terms of the FTC winning lawsuits. But when you look at uh, other things where they went up against Facebook and some other things earlier this year, uh, they lost. Mm-hmm. So it's a back and forth. It's not going to go away. Uh, you know, when you when you take into account, uh, you have Amazon, who now, uh, as a company, has 40% of all of the online shopping in, in the country. The fact that they're a, a company now worth over a trillion dollars, and they move more product and deliver deliver more than FedEx and all of these other major uh, folks out there that have been doing it for a long time, it does, it does set up for something that is going to stay in the courts for a long time. And I think there's clearly two diff- different sides to this. And um, I don't think either side will ever give an inch in their debate and argument about uh, where they see that, that this should go. Right. Well, if you look back to the, the early uh, 20th century or late 20th century, uh, and or my, my apologies, uh, early 20th century uh, and, and late 19th century, whenever we saw these antitrust laws adopted in the United States, they, they were in response to these oil barons, the, the railroad tycoons that did control large avenues of industry. We look at Amazon right now, I think 40% of online sales are through Amazon. Uh, an, enor- an enormous number of Amazon sellers are third-party providers. If those sellers try to sell on other platforms and maybe offer a discount there that they don't offer on Amazon, they get punished. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that, all of that goes against these ideas, these precepts of, of the, the free market. And as consumers, if we're going to benefit from the free market, the, the market actually has to be free. And we can talk about government regulation, whether or not government regulation interferes with that freedom. But we can also look at things that the private sector does to create monopolies. And those monopolies, if they act in in concert with one another, uh, or if they own enough of the market share themselves, they can, even without operating in concert with other actors, begin to manipulate how that market works and ultimately hurt consumers and hurt the ability of businesses that are trying to participate in the market and maybe think of things that are innovative that might benefit benefit us as consumers. It's it's difficult to think of of a uh, of a shopping model that is as easy and nice as Amazon. I hit a button and it shows up at my house. That's amazing, <laughs> but you know I couldn't have imagined Amazon like that. Maybe what was it? You know, 15 years ago, the idea that I could hit a button and something shows up in a day or two, and I'm not even really paying for it except for this Prime subscription. Uh, that's 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 kind of that innovation that we want to be able to foster, and who knows what that next thing would be. Uh, and what kind of a benefit it would provide to us as consumers. And if we don't have folks that go out and hold these big companies accountable, we could rob ourselves of that next innovation. Neva's right. These these cases are going to be in the courts for a very long time, but it is heartening to see that Republicans and Democrats are coming together and saying you know, we can't stifle the market artificially this way by allowing one operator to to set the rules. But if you have two-thirds of uh, basically two-thirds of uh, Americans who've decided that they want to have a member subscription with an entity, uh, they want to do business with that entity, um, that opens up that other side of the argument in terms of the monopoly 
the monopoly argument versus the fact that consumers are getting a product and getting a service that they want. And now they see, uh, in the instance of uh, Amazon, moving into many other uh, areas, whether it's health or filmmaking or you name it, they've gone on and on in terms of their diversification. And the consumers tend to be, at this point, when you look at the statistics and the numbers, tend to be staying with them. So it will be interesting to see how this uh, progresses through the courts and in just general conversation. Western Heights Schools faces an investigation from State Superintendent Ryan Walters and the Department of Education after hiring a principal who performs in drag. Shane Mernon, who performs under the name Chantel Mandalay, is taking the position as the principal for John Glenn Elementary. Walter says having a drag performer in charge of a school is simply unacceptable. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this investigation? Well, you know, let's look at what we said here. Urgent measures to protect traditional values from spreading destructive ideologies. I apologize. Wrong notes. Uh, That was from a presidential declaration from Vladimir Putin. Let me get the, the actual notes here from Ryan Walters. What he says is, uh, that you know anything that might expose kids to inappropriate sexual content at school is cause for serious concerns and is absolutely contrary to Oklahoma values. Oklahoma values uh, are about limited government. Uh, you know, that's that's a big Oklahoma value. We don't want the government coming to snoop into our personal business. And even if you're a state employee, when you go to work uh, at the end of that work hour and you go home, there are very few exceptions uh, where the government can begin to step into your private life and how you're conducting that. You know, if, if anybody has brought this principal's uh, private life and their activities and their and their art or whatever, whatever it is that they're doing on their own time into the public's eye here, it's Ryan Walters. Uh, he's the one who's highlighted this. He's raising this up. If if he hadn't done issued all these press releases and threatened the accreditation of the school that is already recovering from years of turmoil uh, and has this has most certainly set them back in their ability to recover from that. This is a a direct injury to those parents and those students in that school district by creating this nothing issue. And I've got to imagine, I don't know this for sure, but I've got to imagine that this principal is probably the subject of a lot of threats uh, and and a lot of uh, public ridicule and humiliation because that's what happens. And Ryan Walters knows that. Ryan Walters knows that whenever he turns his trolls on somebody, that it's not just vicious words, but sometimes these vicious words turn into actual threats. And I think that he needs to be more careful with how he singles out individuals uh, for this type of public ridicule just to score some political points. Neva. Well, um, it, it, is, it is very unfortunate that Western Heights is in the position that they're in due to you know such serious financial mismanagement and all of the things that have gone on in, in the last few years. And the fact that what, it, what has happened is the school district's on probation, which is one step away from, from losing accreditation and potentially uh, being closed. So they're in a tough spot. I mean, they, uh, uh, we, we talked about, I think, months ago, the fact that when the district uh, lost something like 40% of all of its employees and, and hundreds of students that, uh, that moved to other schools, and this was during the tenure of, uh, of the superintendent before he was, before he was removed, and all of that, as you say, Ryan, the aftermath, I mean, they're still trying to climb out from that hole. And then they have uh, all of these other issues that they have to deal with from the district standpoint on top of it. So, um, you know, we talk about a lot of schools last week. We talked about Tulsa, the, the Tulsa Public School District. Um, these schools are facing many things. And I think uh, 
Uh, in this instance, uh, the headlines certainly don't help anything with regard to education of these students in Western Heights. It's not like they've run out of things to talk about, about what they need in the classroom. You know, what educators need there, what administrators need, what parents need, what students and, and uh, board members need in Western Heights. We haven't run out of those things at all. And so the idea that we've got to start you know, going through individual staff members' uh, Facebook posts to try to come up with something that we can attack them with, that just misses the entire point uh, uh, entirely. And, and, and I, well, I'm redundant there on my part, but it misses the entire point. And I think that Again, it puts this principal in a very difficult position personally. If, if I were him, I would, I would be concerned for my safety. Uh, and that's not the way that we address political issues. Even if Ryan Walters thinks that what this principal is doing is somehow a violation of the law, which it is not. In fact, what Ryan Walters is doing is probably a violation of the First Amendment. Uh, he's the one violating the law here. That is, uh, even if he thinks that, there are, there are ways to go about that that don't endanger people and don't distract from the necessary work that's happening in that school district. And you have, and you have the local control issue. It is the local school board who should make these decisions, who should be engaged in the bigger conversation, whatever it happens to be. Uh, and I think the fact that Western Heights hired this principal in June um, and now has you know has that uh, has that individual in a in an elementary school in a position of authority if they want to revisit that that's their prerogative but i think that's i think in the minds of many parents in the minds of many um, patrons of the of the school districts i think that's what they expect they expect those decisions and that conversation to start on the home front and then move from there Governor Stitt is creating a task force on artificial intelligence. Stitt says AI has the potential to revolutionize the way society works, and his task force will identify how it can be used to make government more efficient and improve education. He says the task force will study, evaluate, and develop policy, as well as recommendations for the deployment of AI and generative AI by the end of the year. Neva, how can AI help Oklahoma? Well, I, I, there's no question that there's a lot of potential in terms of uh, being able to look at inefficiencies, uh, duplication, uh, many things, uh, even in terms of uh, being a, an important part of just developing the workforce and being globally competitive. And so all of those things, I mean, when the I think the official uh, phrase was emerging technologies was the term used for this task force. And we know that there's task force for virtually everything in government. Um, and this one is, 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 is very similar to that. I mean, they've been given a deadline. The, the uh, call also says that all of the state agency directors are to identify one person uh, in, in their team, in their agency, who is supposed to be uh, identified and then given that, that name given to the appropriate cabinet secretary so that you build this network um, even prior to the report being finalized and submitted by the end of the year and then the court the the task force itself i mean is is a group of individuals uh, largely made up of, of folks that are working uh, at the purview of the governor in their in their positions and and other appointees the the speaker and the pro tem do have a designee or can be on that task force as well but i think i think the backstop to all of this is that the governor has made statements about how proud he is already of uh, his executive team, the executive branch, uh, their leadership, uh, IT leaders and others in OMES and across the board in government. 
that are kind of pace setters in some of this conversation about AI. And I think he just wants to move that, it would seem, by this task force, move it forward and get something on paper by the end of the year. And perhaps this will be um, an agenda item for him in, in his next state of the state or legislation that he wants to see in the next session. Um, that would not be uh, a bad supposition given the fact of the timing of what's been laid out this week. Right. You know, I hope one of the findings is that, you know, local political radio shows uh, need to be hosted uh, and, and, uh, and guest, <laughs> guest hosted uh, with commentators that are human beings. That I, I really hope that that's one of the top things that they come out of this because, boy, it just, it just makes me terribly sad to think that we could all be replaced by chatbots at some point. Uh, and and I, I hope people would notice the difference, but maybe it's all just a bunch of chatbots talking to chatbots and nobody will know. I, uh, I tried to save the governor's task force some time this morning. I, I went in and I took the governor's uh, you know, detailed call for or, or a charge for this task force, and I put it into ChatGPT, and I got it was really great here. I've got, I've got uh, five, uh, it gave me talking points here. I've got five potential uses and gave me details. And one was an agricultural enhancement. Uh, the other one is healthcare improvement, energy efficiency, national d- disaster prediction, education enhancement. Uh, it gave me five you know, solid benefits to the people. And then it gave me five vulnerabilities and it gave me details on each one of those. So the task force itself could benefit by (laughs) using just an outline that's generated by artificial intelligence. I I think that this is a good thing for the state to be looking at. Perhaps you could be appointed to this (laughs) task force. (laughs) Uh, Maybe, uh, you know, I'll I'll wait for the, I'll wait for the call. Uh, But this is something that the state's looking at and that's important. Uh, The federal government is also looking at this. The, the rapidly changing environment may be one that has uh, gone so far that our political actors and our political institutions simply won't be able to keep up. And uh, a lot of what I think states and the federal government are going to be doing, and, and to, to a larger extent, you know, uh, global partners are going to be doing, is, is really reacting to what is happening with uh, artificial intelligence instead of actually steering where artificial intelligence goes. We, we are beyond that point right now. And the, the idea that we can that we can incentivize or move it one way or the other, I think we're really just in this reaction moment. But those reactions are very important because just as there are a lot of real benefits, there are a lot of real dangers out there as well. We need to be prepared for them, know how to identify them, and have some plans as to how to respond. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org. Hey there, this is Ginny Mae Harms with KOSU, where we want to talk with you, not just at you. One way we connect with listeners just like you is through social media, like Instagram. So follow us at KOSU Radio, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into KOSU reporting, station news, and even ticket giveaways. Just follow KOSU Radio on Instagram, and we'll see you there.